Rise and shine, history buffs. Welcome to the Monday Morning General Podcast, where we give you the play-by-play analysis on battles from military history. My name is Brendan Forrest, and I am joined today by Bjorn Olsen and Sam DeCosmo. All right. In December of 1805, Napoleon faced a daunting challenge. Defeat a combined Austro-Russian army vastly superior in numbers to his French army at Austerlitz. Rather than confront the Allies directly, Napoleon devised an ingenious plan to turn their strength against them. He deliberately weakened the vital Pratson Heights in the center, spreading rumors of French demoralization, taking the bait. The overconfident Allies seized the Heights early on, overextending themselves. This was precisely Napoleon's intent. By seeding the Heights, he set a cunning trap for his enemies. Austerlitz would witness a mastery of the art of war this is, and Napoleonic this is so, brilliance. This is so wild. The whole crux of this, quote-unquote, one of the greatest battles in history, is a general, an emperor, seeding key terrain. Can you imagine being in an MDMP session today and going to the boss and be like, hey, sir, I have an idea. Sir, have Let's, I got an idea for you? I know you. We, have, we own this key terrain now. Let's give it up. That's just wild. We would get immediately it. disbarred from officerhood. You'd get fired. <laughs> That's right. That classic <laughs> yeah, exactly. administrative action. Except for when it works. Like if it's a really right. good idea, but... That's what's so ridiculous about this whole scenario. And we're going to see this throughout a lot of different battles. Most of the ones that make it on here are where they do something out of the ordinary and it results in something spectacular happening. Other times, it's the exact opposite where it's like, why in the world would someone have done that? But in this instance, like it's the same with uh, the Battle of Trafalgar. Horatio Nelson does something he's never supposed to do. He crosses his own T to an outstanding, spectacular victory. The Allied plan of attack on Austerlitz was devised by Austrian Chief of Staff Franz von Weyrother. Weyrother envisioned a bold flanking maneuver against the French right flank. The bulk of the Allied forces would march south and sweep around the weak French flank, rolling up the French line from south to north. To fix the French troops in place, the Allied advance guards would demonstrate along the Goldbach River, engaging the French but avoiding major combat. That's classic. Perfect. Just a classic. To the book. Move. By the book. Just... Sweep around. Let's yep. flank the On the weak flank, no less. Never been done. Once the Allied flanking columns had driven off the French right and were behind the French positions, the advance guards would attack in earnest, catching the French in a pincer. Weyrother's plan sought to achieve a double envelopment of Napoleon's army, but it relied heavily on speed and surprise. The Allied columns would need to march swiftly and covertly, covertly to get behind the French without being detected. Some Allied commanders had doubts about Weyrother's scheme, the Russian general Kutuzov, in particular, was skeptical. But Tsar Alexander endorsed the plan. And- so yeah. here's a question for you. At this point, it's 1805. Is Napoleon, at this point in time, one of the greatest generals in history? I mean, he's had some, ex- he's had some good victories mm-hmm. by this time. But do these people quite understand or know what they're getting themselves into? I think That's it's my hard main to know question. that you're one of the great generals in history while you're currently generaling. I think that has to be evaluated in hindsight. Oh, really? But they fought this. I think the news has been spread throughout Europe at this time. This is the third coalition. They've dealt with him before. So they have. I, yeah, I don't think they were discounting his capabilities, well, but different. I don't know if people were going to be talking about him in terms of the greatest of all time at this point. Because the sure. Battle of Austerlitz hasn't happened well, yet. This so, is his crowning achievement. Right. But he's been victorious in France. He's been victorious in Italy. He's been victorious in Egypt. He's been victorious. The question that I have is when you're going up against someone who's, I don't know, like, 10 victories out of 10 battles, wouldn't you step back and be like, whoa, maybe this guy's got something up his sleeve. Wouldn't you be a little bit extra wary, especially when we're talking about... Has he won a battle against the Prussians? He has. Yes. No, I know the Prussians are not in this battle. battle, But like they're at this point in time a a martial state, right? And so I feel like that would be the measure because... You look at other Italian states, you look at Egypt, and they're not necessarily known for their military ability at this point in history. So it's like a boxer. you got to look at who he's fought. He could be 10-0, but has he fought anyone worth assault? I don't know. I, I think they had some idea that this guy knew what he was doing. And to think you're going to achieve a double envelopment is, say, bold thinking. And that's what Tsar Alexander liked. He likes a bold thinker. Yeah. Unlike that Kutuzov. Old Kutuzov. Yeah. Let's talk about the French plan. So while Weyrother envisioned a bold flank attack... Napoleon had his own plan in mind. Rather than wait passively, Napoleon intended to strike before the Allied forces were fully concentrated. Napoleon positioned his forces along a line anchored in the Goldbach River. 
In the center, the weakly held Pratts and Heights presented a tempting target for an Allied attack. Napoleon made sure the Allies knew the Heights were lightly defended. By offering up the Heights, Napoleon hoped to draw the main Allied force into attacking and seizing the plateau. He anticipated that the Allies would capture the Heights early in the battle. Once the Allies were committed to holding the Heights, Napoleon would launch a massive counterattack to recapture them. Marshal Soult's infantry divisions, hidden behind the Heights, would form the spearhead for the counterstroke. Supported by the Imperial Guard and other central reserves, Soult would drive the Allies off the plateau and regain control of the Pratson Heights. With the Heights retaken, Napoleon would then smash into the Allied center and rear from his newly, re- from his newly regained high ground. If successful, Napoleon's plan would allow him to destroy the Allied right, army. Right, and I think that was truly his end state, was I, I'm facing a foe that has superior numbers. How do I mass fire on the, on them in a way that is going to be effective? Mm-hmm. And to do that, you have to do that piecemeal. So he was figuring out a way to divide the army. And by giving them the high ground and then mm-hmm. waiting for them to maneuver off the high ground and then retaking it, you can then pinch them off yeah. so you're dealing with them in two different sectors. And that Kind of like your like your boxing right. reference, Sam, right? You had to show a weak side. So that's what the point did, right? He showed a weak right that drew the allies and yeah, let's go there and then we'll roll them up from the south. And right. Napoleon exactly. wanted that to happen. A little side note here. I just looked it up. Napoleon, prior to the Battle of Austerlitz, had fought thirty-nine battles. He had lost three. Holy smokes. So he was that's a good record. I mean, how many of those battles were as an artillery captain? You know what I mean? Well, I mean, a lot of these battles are, he's going against <coughs> Hapsburgs, so he's fighting But how many of those w- was he the emperor Sorry. or the commanding general in the field? This was the first one was the emperor, these, or the these first are, These are his victories. So, like, the siege of Toulon is his first victory where he is, he's just a captain but at he that wins battle. It. It's, it's him. He wins that, it. It's his genius that yep. was the decisive his, factor. These are his victories. 36 victories Oof. three losses prior to the battle of austerlitz also That's status the right battle there. of ulm the battle of ulm was a huge victory for him yeah. it wasn't as big as austerlitz but that had just happened two you months know, I, prior to austerlitz i would put so. the battle of ulm up here with it because he it, it wasn't as decisive yes but it was just as impressive in the, in that he def- yeah. Defeated an Still Austrian defeated army, an Austrian by maneuver. Army. Like we talked about in the last episode, yes, there was direct right. fire, but it was primarily just simple maneuver that did it. Yeah, so I would have been a little bit more cautious than these guys yeah. here. Maybe he's got something of his sleeve. He's won 36 times. He knows what he's doing. Or just the hubris that's involved in thinking you can beat a guy who's won 93% well, it's not of his battles. hubris when you have superior numbers, you have key terrain, you have... Yeah. The high ground, like it's not necessarily hubris. You have a sound order battle. Yeah. At some time, you got to step back and be like, "Wait a second, why is he doing what yeah. he's doing? Wait a second. Yeah. I want to talk quickly about the terrain of the battlefield, just so we can center ourselves on the on the piece of land that is being fought over here today. So the Battle of Austerlitz was fought in the pla- the flat plains of Moravia, with a few key terrain features shaping the battlefield. So the first one is the Gold Box Stream. This was a small waterway that flowed through the southern part of the battlefield, passing just in front of the French positions. The Goldbach Valley provided the French sun protection as allied attacks emerging from the stream would have to fight uphill. Several villages lined the banks of the Goldbach and could serve as strong points. Talnitz marked the southern end of the battlefield. The village sat on rising ground beside a bridge over the Goldbach. With its stone houses and walled gardens, it formed a ready-made defensive position. Further north along the stream stood Sokolnitz, another village that could be turned into a stronghold to stride the Goldbach. Between Telnitz and Sokolnitz, the French anchored their southern flank. And I think in Sokolnitz, there was a castle there, right? There was some fortifications that were existing yeah. that the French were able to fall in on. Yeah. Yep. And then there was some small rolling pet hills, some orchards. So places that offered really good cover and concealment for the French. Uh, it's under, you, we got to understand this isn't just the Battle of Marathon, which was a couple hundred yards long. This is like a six yeah. mile wide, six mile long battlefield. When you're talking about going around the left flank, which is the weak side, that's a big. Yeah. It's miles away. So that's a long ways. It's yeah. not just something you can just pick up and charge on over to strengthen yeah. that flank. In the center of the battlefield were the Pratson Heights. This was a large plateau that rose nearly 60 meters over the surrounding plain. From the summit of the heights, whoever held them would have a commanding view for miles in all directions. The Pratson Heights were key to control of the battlefield. 
Though the heights dominated the battlefield, the undulating terrain provided some dead space where troops could be hidden from observation. Undulating. Not just a key terrain, piece undulating. of key terrain, the piece of key terrain for the battle. So when you're talking about Big Hill, I'm looking here at a terrain map right now, and you're talking about a, a 60-foot incline. I mean, it's not a mountain, but it's it's good enough. Significantly higher than the surrounding terrain. Right. Providing good observation. Okay, let's jump into the battle. So the first thing is we're gonna have some fighting that begins along the Goldbach and the villages. We talked about in the terrain section, the small village of Telnitz that anchored the southern part of the terrain. Telnitz was defended by around 2,500 French infantry comprised of the Corsican and Italian Trulier battalions, as well as, as, well as the third line infantry regiment. The, line comp- the light companies were positioned along the crest in front of the village with the Corsicans and Italians Wait, holding the, the vineyards. the Italians were just hanging out in a vineyard? That sounds like the most Italian thing of all time. <laughs> yes, you would know. There was about a thousand cavalry under General Margaron positioned on the right flank of Telnitz. Marshal Sewell had around 12,000 total troops from his 4th Corps in the vicinity to support the defense of Telnitz on the morning of December 2nd. Sewell arrayed his forces expertly to maximize the defensive potential of the village. The infantry garrison, the stone buildings, and walled courtyards. Loopholes for muskets were bored into the walls, and then the orchards and gardens provided cover and concealment. Though outnumbered by the attacking Austro-Russian forces, Sewell's veteran troops occupied Telnitz in depth with multiple redundant positions. The marshy banks of the So I think that's really important about how Napoleon and Sewell arrayed their forces here was Napoleon chose the right side to be the quote-unquote weak flank because the terrain allowed that to yes. hold, allow them to hold that position a little bit longer, make it difficult for the Austrians to actually do what they wanted to do and roll them up. So the terrain was providing them that by arraying that way. Napoleon was using that ar- array to justify his quote-unquote weakness to his enemies. We have to be weak on the right, right because we don't have enough, or we have because we don't have enough men, whatever he was trying to, to say. And so I was like, well, if we're going to be weak somewhere, so he was not only thinking what the enemy was going to be thinking, but he was thinking how the enemy would think he would be thinking. He was just, he was playing three-dimensional chess, yeah. and it was awesome. Yeah, terrain like that basically makes a defender act like four to five men, maybe three to four men. It just gives you a very significant advantage just in terms of, like, having cover right. is a huge thing in a fight like this, right? Otherwise, you're going to be out in the open ground. But, and but there the psychological it's be one-to-one, aspect right? that Napoleon used against his enemies due to that, they were very overconfident yeah. in, in how many soldiers they Maybe had compared to Napoleon in that sector, and that gave them the confidence to try to do mm-hmm. what they wanted uh, to roll the, the line up from south to north, which is exactly what Napoleon wanted them to do. So he was playing the psychological factor as well as the mm-hmm. tactical and geographical mm-hmm. factors. Now, I'm looking at the numbers here, and you've got about 12,000 Frenchmen over here, and we're looking at over 30,000, close to 40,000 opposing forces down in that Mm. position of the battlefield. But like you said, Brendan, when you're adding the fortified position to it, the men will fight at a better rate. The only question is, if these were British soldiers versus Austrians and Russians, would they have done better? Now, one of the reasons why is because it's all about the rate of fire at this point mm-hmm. in time. You throw how much lead can you throw downrange? And the British were notorious for being much better mm-hmm. riflemen, much better musketeers than their opponents, partly because they were issued live ammunition in order to practice right. loading and firing. The general practice of the day at this point in time was everyone went through the motions and no one ever had any real ammunition until the day of the battle. They handed you out your your ammo and said, Here you go. Now do what you've practiced. The British, though, were each allocated three rounds per day to practice loading and firing their muskets. So they were significantly better. Most British soldiers could fire uh, upwards to four rounds a minute, whereas everyone else was stuck at two. Maybe some of their good soldiers could do three. So you're talking a rate of fire. Guaranteed the Austrians, the Russians do not have the same rate of fire the British would have. But you're still firing 40,000 rounds for every 12,000 of the French. The French here are also highly trained, right? They spent that time in camp with Napoleon, training with live ammunition as well. I would say the French are probably close to equal with the British capabilities at this point. And the British are here. Defending Telnitz was critical to Napoleon's overall plan in Austerlitz. Soult's troops had to hold the village as long as possible to fix the Allies in place. Their determined defense would buy time for Napoleon's trap to spring later in the day. Telnitz anchored the French southern flank and shielded it from being turned. 
retaining the village disrupted the Allied battle plan and prevented their flanking maneuver. Although significantly outnumbered, Soult's veterans understood that Telnitz was the key to foiling Weyrother's strategy. Their orders were to make the Allies bleed for every inch and hold at all costs. The main Allied assault on Telnitz came from the south, led initially by General Kienmeyer's advance guard of the first column. His force comprised the first and second Zezkeli Grenzer Infantry Regiments, a battalion of the 7th Broad Grenz Regiment, and 12 artillery pieces, totaling around 4,000 men and guns. The Grenzer Regiments were light infantry recruited from Austria's military frontier with Turkey. Skilled at fieldcraft, they were misused by attacking in dense columns. The Russian general, Langeron, was to reinforce Kienmeyer later with two divisions of infantry, totaling 9,000 men. The total Allied attacking force would eventually grow to around 22,000 men once the Russians committed. The overall Allied plan called for overwhelming Telnitz through attacks from multiple directions. Kienmeyer would anchor the main attack up the Goldbach Valley while Langeron demonstrated against the French right flank. Cavalry would await any breakthrough to exploit. However, communication issues meant many commanders lacked orders once the fighting began. This lack of coordination would hinder the attacks. At dawn, the battlefield was obscured by fog as Allied artillery bombardment opened fire but did not but did little damage to Telnitz's stout buildings. Around 8 a.m., the brave but densely packed Grenzers advanced and were met with devastating volleys as they entered the village streets. Despite terrible losses, Kienmeyer fed more battalions into the attack. The second Zezgeli and a battalion of the 7th Broad Grenz Regiment reinforced the assault. After several bloody repulses, Kienmeyer finally took Telnitz around 9 a.m. using his superior numbers, capturing some French defenders who had barricaded themselves inside the buildings. But soon after, around 9.30 a.m., Marshal Devout counterattacked. His infantry drove the exhausted Grenzers back out of Telnitz in ferocious street fighting. However, Austrian cavalry soon intervened, charging and routing Devout's troops in turn. Now, you said that they were abused in their column, right? You said that the Grenzers... The Austrians, as they're punching through the city, they were abused in their dense formations. I would argue that's maybe one of the better formations to use if all your goal is to gain ground and push forward. The, the problem with the, the point there, right, though, is exactly. that they're really good at fieldcraft. It's to have the, they're right. probably a better use for scouting and that sort of thing, right. not just attacking in a mass formation. Sure. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. That makes sense. Then, so, again, they sound been tactics, the, but they didn't they know their soldiers, they didn't understand their assets. These guys would have been better skirmishers right. as a result instead of yeah. just you get the least trained, um, trashiest soldier to be put them all in a dense column and tell them to take the city. And they're going to they're going to push forward better than if they were in a line or if they were. That, that's how I, that's how I want to take you them also city. mentioned Rush that in. the French were able to use the fog to their advantage. That might sound like a happenstance thing, but Napoleon is going to use the fog to his advantage in several sectors here in this battle. So it's, it's just, again, really interesting. He really listened to his IPB analysis from his S2. That's right. Oh, yeah. I don't know what the weather exactly. The meteorologist came out and said, That's yeah, right. it's going to be fog in the morning. Back and forth fighting rage as more regiments joined the swirling melee around Telnitz. Volley fire, cavalry clashes, and bayonet assaults followed one another in rapid succession as both sides tried to retake control of the battle village. By late morning, the streets of Telnitz were piled high with dead and wounded from the merciless close quarters combat. The Grenzers had suffered horrendous losses, but their sacrifice allowed the rest of Kienmeyer's column to push closer to the Goldbach stream. While the Austrians clung stubbornly to their hard-won foothold in Telnitz, their grip remained tenuous as French counterattacks continued. But the stalemate suited Napoleon just fine. The Allies right, were being because thrown. as the Allies are committing to Telnitz, that they're sending more soldiers more in. To, to that southern border, to that southern sector. And that's exactly what Napoleon wanted to do. He wanted to weaken the stronghold that they had on the Preston Heights, and he wanted to segregate <laughs> and piecemeal the Allies, and that's exactly what this is doing. This is playing right into Napoleon's hand. To the north of Telnitz, the sound of intense fighting could also be heard around Sopelnitz, as Langeron's Russians pressed hard against the outnumbered forces of General Legrand's division. If the French flank collapsed here, Telnitz would soon be outflanked. The two villages were tactically interlinked, and the battle would be won or lost depending on which side prevailed at both strong points. So around Sokolnitz, the defenders included the 26th Line Infantry Regiment and the newly arrived 48th Line Infantry Regiment, both garrisoned within Sokolnitz itself and the overlooking castle. Despite exhaustion after forced marches from Vienna, the troops prepared to meet the coming attack. The attackers were part of General Langeron's Russian Corps, comprised of about 8,000 infantry and 30 cannon. Around 8.30 a.m., the Russian assault began. 
masses of Russian infantry descended from the Pratsen Heights and advanced on Sokolnitsch through the mist. The 48th line met the attack head-on, their furious countercharge driving the Russians back initially. However, Langerand quickly brought up the Perm Regiment and the Kursk Battalion to retake the village. The 48th line found themselves trapped in the storage barns and cottages on the southern edge of Sokolnitsk. Fighting raged from building to building as the Russians forced their way in amidst severe close quarters combat. That's the one thing that's been really surprising to me about this fight is I'm very used to like hearing about 18th and 19th century battles, right? right? Like big open field battles. But then like you hear this one, this really intense street fighting. It's just like takes you out because it's, oh man, I just think about these right. great armies just moving sending big musket volleys. That's, you're right. And yeah. bayoneting somebody in close quarters is probably no joke. That yeah. would do some damage to the old noggin there. In terms of PTSD yeah. and what? And the old bread basket. Yeah. Yeah. Legrand sent in the 111th line to relieve the pressure. Their attack sweeping into Sokolnitz and allowing the 48th line to fall back. But the 111th also found themselves surrounded and isolated. With the situation deteriorating, Legrand committed two more regiments. Langeron kept funneling <laughs> in reinforcements. The fierce seesaw battle inflicted heavy casualties as the morning wore on. Despite the 48th and the 111th line regiment's stubborn resistance, the weight of Russian numbers gradually prevailed. By late morning, the French had been pushed out of most of Sokolnitz after hours of brutal combat. Only scattered troops clung to the outskirts. A little quote here for you guys. Uh, Amidst the carnage and chaos, we clung to our duty. Hold the flank and buy the emperor time, whatever the cost. That was Lieutenant There Clark was uh, also a quote, I believe it happened right along this time, and it goes something like this. When the enemy is making a false movement, we must take good care not to interrupt him. I was Napoleon when the, all of his marshals wanted to push the assault with his reserve when he saw the allies coming off the Prasen Heights. And Napoleon said, no, just wait. Let them make their false move, and we're going to take good care not to interrupt them. Now, Brendan, I really like the quote that you added because it says, hold the flank and buy the emperor time. So obviously, Lieutenant Cloud Frio right. knew what was going on. Yeah, and he understood the concept of operations. The lieutenant's not the the highest ranking individual who's in this conflict, which means that they did a really good job of ensuring that everyone knew what their job was, but also what the overall plan was for the day. You need to hold this. So but win it's just so easy to see them falling into your trap and you wanting to bite. But no, you have to be methodical about your well, plan. That's, that's been significant exactly. discipline on Napoleon's part being able to, um, to know exactly when the animal is in the trap and not spring the trap before right. you've got your prey inside. But then also just the absolute trust that these French soldiers mm. must have had for Napoleon to be able to do what they can do. They know this guy's, they know his record. They know he's 36 yeah. and three. They're here to win. And even though they're outnumbered, by the emperor right. time, but we're going to win this Again, game. that that goes back to a sense of national pride and everything else. Napoleon purposely weakened the right flank. But if you're a soldier on the right flank, you're like, what the hell, man? This is my life we're dealing with here. Like, it's not to say that the French aren't going to sustain, to sustain losses. And that doesn't take away from the soldiers that will lose their life here, the French soldiers and the Allied soldiers. But it's part of Napoleon's plan. He was willing to gamble with lives, and it, it gave him a great record. But, but not only that, Napoleon's known for his uh, ability to make every one of his soldiers mm. feel as though they're important to him. And so even though they know he's not going to throw their lives away, at least until Russia, they have a, yeah. they, they think differently after that happens. But prior to this, he's been known to mm. remember people's names many years after seeing them. Oh yeah. I remember we fought together here and the, the dudes are just like, are you kidding me that I was that important to him that he would remember me? handing out bread to his soldiers, making sure that his soldiers understood he was there for him. So you're going to have that that loyalty when your soldiers think Absolutely. of you that way. The emperor got me a birthday card. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> Even sprung for the one that makes no the entire battalion, The entire corps staff signed it too. Yeah. <laughs> oh, man. Okay, so the Russian Langeron had won a tactical victory, but his ranks were disordered and required regrouping after the intense fighting. This brief lull allowed the French to rally their crumbling flank. Yet Napoleon knew time was running out to spring his trap before Allied reinforcements arrived. With intense fighting raging at Telnitz and Sokolnitz in the morning, Napoleon waited for the opportune moment to spring his trap. 
on the Pratts and Heights, the Allied forces were deployed in a disjointed formation after earlier delays and confusion in their advance. Much different than the French's ability to communicate the plan, obviously, that we heard from Lieutenant Claude Friot. Uh, the Russians and the Austrians did no such thing. It was very confusing, even at the high levels of the army. Miloradovich held the northern slopes, while Kamensky anchored the center. Reserves under Kolarath and Roth were positioned further back. The Allies took the bait, funneling reinforcements into Telnitz and Sokolnitz throughout the morning and weakening their center on the Prats and Heights. So essentially what they're doing is their center is the heights that they've right. taken yep. and they think it's this vital position. Napoleon's purposely given them that. Now, during the entirety of the morning, they're moving men north and south off of the hill, but they're also going they're going at an angle away and they're basically opening themselves up to a But they, they don't necessarily think so because they think that is that their that key terrain is now behind their their uh, front line of troops. Right. So they think that they still control Napoleon sucking them in because right. these allied think- generals are feeling the pressure right. that, oh we've almost got it. We've almost got it. Just another guy. We're pushing them back. We're taking yeah. this village. We're gonna do it just a little bit more. They give they become too invested. And yeah. Napoleon's plan had right. nothing to do with the invest. Like he knew they were going to invest there. So the question would have been: What would Napoleon's plan have been had they not moved forward to no, attack? Kutuz- had they just occupied so the Kutuzov heights? So Kutuzov had a great plan. There. I'm going to touch on that a little bit later. I'm not sure if anyone would have listened to him, but get, given the, their order of battle, I'm not sure what else they they would have done be, besides attacking. Tsar Alexander right. from Russia wanted to attack. He wanted glory. He wanted to be, defeat Napoleon. So, yeah, he wanted to attack. But I'm just saying, like, Napoleon benefited right. from the Austrian plan here, too, a little bit. I think he allowed them to play into his hands. Yeah. He gave them the opportunity to for them to commit further to their plan instead of reconsidering during the fight. Confident the time was right, around 9 a.m., Napoleon ordered Marshal Sewell to begin the main assault on the weakened Allied Center. The operation began with General Van Damme's division, Tasked with seizing the vital position of Ster Vinorati on the lower slopes, which Do you would think serve as the goal for the, the attack. Van Damme family. Does Jean Claude descend from General Van Damme? Yeah, I, I think it's, it's Jean Claude's <laughs> dad. The long living family. All right, so here's a question Where is Marshal Soult and these dudes at this point in the battle? Where so is the position? They're. They're in the center. Of, they're in the center, but the, like these hills, like there are some hills that they're hiding right. behind it. And this is, I, I wasn't joking when they're I said that Napoleon used the fog to his advantage. So they're sitting in the low underneath the IV line, so they can't be seen from the present heights. Not only that, but the fog is laying low and giving them concealment in their current position. And then it was mm-hmm. right when it was right around this time at 9 a.m. that the fog was starting to burn off. They started to assault the Preston Heights. And then all of a yep. sudden, the Allies were like, where the hell are these guys, these guys coming from? So I'm looking at the map here. At this point in time, Marshal Sult's got 19,000 yeah. dudes. Yeah, but those guys are also forward. split into the right. area around Telnitz and Sulkanitz, too. So his core had, takes up a big chunk of this battle. Sulkanitz and Telnitz have 12,000. Marshal Sult here is positioned by Schlapsnigs, which is in the center of the line, about ready to move towards the Pretz and Heights. Yeah. And then there's another about 18,000 men up by Bosnia, the northern portion of the battle. Total, grand total, Napoleon's got 74,000. Yeah, so under Marshal Soult was General Van Damme's division, and he was assigned to secure the foothold for the French main attack on the... Oh, wait, nope. did we already say that? Sorry, no, I didn't. Okay. General Van Damme's division was assigned to secure the foothold for the main French attack up the Pratsen Heights. His objective was the village of Stair Vinarati on the lower slopes, defended by Austrian infantry and artillery. The Austrians had prepared strong defensive works in this village, using the sturdy stone buildings and high hedgerows to create interlocking fields of fire. Their artillery was positioned on higher ground behind, able to rain deadly capture shot into the French. As Theobald's brigade advanced underneath General Van Damme, uh, the Austrian infantry withheld fire until the French were at nearly point-blank range before unleashing coordinated volleys. Under this blistering fire, the French faltered as Austrian guns pounded their flanks. Pressing forward, the French reformed into columns to break through the outer defenses. Fierce close-quarters fighting allowed the Austrians reluctantly gave up each house and strong point. Artillery now switched to solid shot, collapsing rooftops onto the French as they cleared rooms with bayonet charges. When St. Hilaire's brigade attacked, the Austrians directed some infantry to hold the front while others swung out to threaten the French flanks. Only by quickly reforming did the French lines maintain cohesion under deadly crossfire. 
So this is one of those situations where Napoleon pulls out a different style of formation than is the doctrine. So the doctrine of the time is your men are either marching column, right? Or they are in their line. And the line is two ranks deep if you're British. Some have three ranks deep. But in this situation, uh, Napoleon's going to bring his men into a dense column and it's 10 men wide by 10 men deep. And these dudes are going to push themselves into this, onto these heights. The guys behind are basically pushing forward the guys in the front. So you never wanted to be the 10 dudes in the front because they're going to get smashed. Yeah. But the dudes in the dudes in the back are in pretty decent protected position. So you limit the amount of opportunities for the enemy to fire right. upon you, right? Because you only have 10 guys in the front. Whereas if you're in a big line of two, right? So then you have a line of 50. Right. And when it There's takes 20 seconds to, to reload, you can cover a lot of ground in 20 seconds. And you that's sure their can. entire point. The entire point of this is mm. cover the ground. They're not going to stand and fight. They're not going to fire their volley and match the Austrians toe-to-toe here. They are going to punch through. Mm. And the best way to punch through is to collapse the distance as quick as possible, get in amongst them, and charge. Yeah. Around 9.30 a.m., following an intense bombardment, Van Damme sent Theobald's brigade forward in disciplined battalion columns, maintaining cohesion as they advanced uphill under fire. Once within range, the battalions rapidly deployed into line formation, unleashing coordinated volleys into the Austrian defenses. So basically, Bern, like what you're talking about, right? They're advancing in these 10 by 10 columns. And then as soon as they get to the firing point, they spread out into a line. And they're like, the French are really good at doing this, switching back and forth between formations really quickly. Just goes to show the level of training and the level of discipline that the, the French English have. Channel. They drilled for months. Right. That's all they had time to do. Under heavy fire, the French were formed into columns to minimize exposure as they breached the outer defenses. They then articulated back into line to clear the houses and walls with bayonet charges. Man, I'd be exhausted. Seeing Theobald stalled, Van Damme ordered St. Hilaire's brigade forward in columns. They were redeployed on the move into two parallel lines, pitting the Austrians frontally while detachments broke off to flank the village. Skillfully utilizing terrain and fieldworks, the Austrians inflicted heavy losses before being driven back by French numbers and mass artillery. Their determined defense significantly slowed Van Damme's timetable. After intense urban combat, Van Damme finally secured Stare Vinarati by 10 a.m., opening the way for the decisive French advance up the Pratson Heights. So here's a question that I have. The the consistent, the maneuvering from column to line, uh, back into a column, forming into two parallel lines to pin the Austrians, all this maneuvering, is this, is this base level... You've got your platoon leaders making these decisions, or is this a regiment level? I mean, I, mean, yeah, I think it's battle drills, right? Decision. Battle drills that get I think for the, it's, yeah. So, like, Bjorn, you know, remember when we were doing, like, squat stick slams, right? We, we, we could switch back and forth from a wedge into a line, into a column or whatever pretty quickly, but we right. had trained to and, do that. Yeah, we can make our, we can have our 40 soldiers in the platoon do that. We can make that happen. But we're right. talking but, about, there's 20,000 men. Right, but the same point, they just spend months together training to do just that. Yeah. So I, I think it's feasible that they're doing it at the at the battalion level at least. He said he set them up in battalion columns. I think this is a it's very impressive. Yeah. But also the question is, did they plan this or was this in response to the needs at the time? Someone made the call, hey, we're moving well, into two parallel lines. Hey, yeah, kind of yeah. sounds like the SLB. So, they probably had hand signals again, and stuff to move to people lines, into like, these formations. What, we have battle drills for reacting to indirect fire. We have battle drills for reacting to direct fire. I'm sure they had battle drills that they rehearsed. Right. Exactly. They said croissant and they got into columns. Yeah. Uh, croissant. Croissant. Meanwhile, yeah. the Italians are hanging out in the vineyard like, oh. Kid, we love all of our French listeners. You all are great. Yeah, all half of a percentage point somebody genetically. Uh, so having secured the foothold at Stair Vinerati, the French pressed up could you imagine that being this? Where do you live? Uh, Stair Vinerati. What a silly name for a place to live. Uh, the French pressed up the slopes of the Pratsen Heights, overwhelming the disjointed defenses of the Russian fourth column. The fourth column was arrayed across the plateau under Generals Miloradovich and Kolarov, numbering around 12,000 men and 70 guns. But their deployment was thin and poorly coordinated. Imagine how many they would have had if they hadn't moved right. to yeah. the outside front. a lot more. Mm-hmm. St. Hilaire's division attacked towards Pratt's village, defended by the Russian Novgorod infantry. Vicious street fighting erupted before the French expelled the Russians in savage house-to-house combat. Meanwhile, Van Damme's division confronted the remainder of Miloradovich's forces on the slopes north of Pratt's. 
Rotterman's Austrian brigade briefly held firm before being driven back by a concerted French assault. Pressed from multiple directions and unable to form a consolidated defense, the cohesion of the Russian fourth column disintegrated. Their infantry squares were cut down by French cavalry and battered by artillery fire. By 11 a.m., the heights were firmly in French hands. So now we're split. Yeah. Right. The Austrians and the Russians are split in half. Which is exactly what Napoleon wanted south. to do. wanted to divide his mm-hmm. his opponent who outnumbered him numerically. So now it's exactly. just turn Asphire, and destroy turn. one and then yep. destroy the other and defeat him. Over 7,000 Russians have been killed or captured with the remainder descending into a disorganized route. The defeat of the fourth column left the strategic Pratts and Heights in French control. Having captured the Heights, though, the French now faced a grave threat as the Russian Imperial Guard arrived to contest their newly gained position. Commanded by Grand Duke Constantine, these elite guardsmen represented Russia's last major reserve. Their counterattack aimed to recapture the Pratsen Plateau and split the French army in two. The opposing guard regiments included the famed Brzezhensky, Semyon Zvensky, and Ismailovsky foot guards. Crap. <laughs> uh, three different units of foot guards, along with regiments of Chevalier Guard and Gendarme Cavalry, in all over 9,000 of Russia's best troops. Deploying near Blazovitz by late morning, Constantine directed a mass infantry and cavalry attack uphill towards the heights. The French steeled themselves as a black clad guardsman advanced with drums beating the pas de charge. So, Blazovitz, that's the uh, village to the north. So you've got the Russians have now got their best soldiers moving south up the slope of the hill to try and retake this hill. These guys are scary as hell, too. (laughs) Black clad. Ooh. Yeah. With the big war drums. That's pretty cool. Outnumbered three to one, the French faced a desperate fight to hold the heights as a Russian guard gained the momentum. As the guard advanced up the heights, they collided with General Wiedenow's division holding the French side. The first clash occurred near Kresnovitz as the Russian cavalry attacked. Despite heavy losses from French artillery fire, the Russian horsemen drove back the isolated 4th Swiss Regiment with their momentum unchecked. We did know raced to reinforce the faltering Swiss troops with the 4th Line Regiment. Forming square, they absorbed the cavalry charge and repulsed the Russian horsemen with a blast of musket fire at 20 paces. Meanwhile, the Russian Priobrezhensky Regiment assaulted We right flank near Blazovitz. Intense musketry erupted as they traded volleys with the French 12th Line Regiment. Gradually forced back, Widenow fed in the 17th Light and 36th Line to stabilize the position. They halted the Priobrezhensky Regiment's advance. For now, Widenow's division barely held its ground against the fury of the Russian Guard onslaught. But the French grip, but the French grip on the Pratsen Plateau remained precarious as fighting raged across the heights. To reinforce the hard-pressed French infantry, Napoleon committed his guard cavalry reserve of around 4,000 elite horsemen under Marshal's Vessieres. This included veterans of the Grenadier à Cheval, Chasseur à Cheval, the Mamelukes, and the Gendarme d'Elite. As they galloped onto the Pratsen Heights, the French guard cavalry immediately collided with Russian guard infantry near Kresnovitz village around 1 p.m. Uh, squadron after squadron plowed into the densely packed Russian regiment, smashing apart the formations with the shock of successive charges. The Russians struggled to form infantry squares, only to have them shattered by French saber attacks before they could fully form. This is what I find so interesting is that a lot of the Napoleonic battles that took place, huge portions of the battle occurred using different yeah. types, different styles of saber cavalry. Saber cavalry. Whereas and gunpowder. 50, 50 years later, the American Civil War, cavalry are only going to be utilized for scouting missions. There's going to be right. so few charges mm. in the Civil War. And there's going to be like one major charge 100 years later during World War One. This is a spectacular situation in which this is the high tide of cavalry. Horse soldiers. Hold on. This is the best you're going to have. Hold on. Hold on. Now hold we have on, horse soldiers without any horses. Hold on. Hold on. I wouldn't say it's the best. I'm, I'm saying this, you is, this is the, the point in history where the purpose of cavalry might change, but that's not the best you're ever going to have. They're like cavalry is not used for cavalry charges anymore. They are used for reconnaissance and security. This that's what the horses want. You're holding the, the horse. The high okay. tide of heavy again, cavalry again. It's it not the high tide. It's just, it's just different. Warfare has evolved, and it's different. It's not the high tide. It's not the low tide. It's just different. And this is where the pages of history turn, and that's okay. 
at dangerously close. Are you trying to fight for your own significance? I I don't need to fight for the significance. The army will fight for that significance for me. Go go ahead and go out on a mission without any reconnaissance, bud. See how that goes. Maybe if the yeah, maybe if the Russians had used their cavalry in a scouting way, they wouldn't have been a victim to Napoleon here. At dangerously close range, I will see that this is the end of the romantic It is no longer romantic after this. All right. It's the high tide. They unleashed point blank volleys from their carbines, <laughs> scything. I don't know why I put this in there. Uh, killing down the Russian ranks, scything down the Russian ranks. Nice. Uh, with the infantry faltering, uh, with the infantry faltering, Russian guard cavalry countercharged to try and protect their lines. Regiments of Chevalier Guards and Horse Guards attempted to drive back the French cavalry. However, the French guardsmen, discipline and experience prevailed. They absorbed the Russian charges with well-timed volleys, then reformed to renew their own attacks. Pounded by French artillery and relentlessly harassed by cavalry charges, the cohesion of the Russian Guard infantry regiments finally disintegrated. Their lines broken and casualties mounting, the Russian Guard began retreating from the heights around 2 p.m. Battle started at 9 a.m., and now we're at this point, 2 p.m. So with the Russian Imperial Guard repulsed, the French had decisively won the Battle of Austerlitz. Napoleon's bold tactics and audacity prevailed, giving the French control of the Pratt's and Heights. But here's the thing, though. They've just captured the Heights. You still have well, two sections They captured the Heights around 10 a.m. It's been now about four hours. And I think the Allies uh, refocused and, their efforts on recapturing their Heights. They lost the forest through the trees. They thought that the mission, it devolved into re- seizing the key terrain again, rather than breaking Napoleon mm-hmm. and his line and causing a rout. There were some other things that are happening up in the north that I don't think was extremely relevant to this discussion, so I left them out of here to give us save us some time. Uh, but yeah, the, the fighting really centered around the Preston Heights once uh, Napoleon initiated his assault. Seeing the Russian center routed, Tsar Alexander ordered a general retreat east towards Austerlitz. Under Marshal's Murad, the French cavalry right, relentlessly I feel like this is the point where we need to clear something up that Ridley Scott definitely took some dramatic license on the ground. I haven't seen the movie. Yeah, so I think that he, Ridley Scott, made the the pond scene out to be kind of the defining moment of Austerlitz. It was really in reality. So what happened was the Russian... Have you seen it, Sam? I'll I'll paint the picture of the video and you tell what really happened, all right? The way Napoleon, the movie, portrays this ending portion of the battle is it makes it out to be a portion of Napoleon's plan is that they were going to force the Austrians to retreat over a frozen lake, at which point in time Napoleon's cannons opened fire <laughs> for the first time, destroying the ice and forcing the retreating troops to surrender. And there's a very dramatic scene where an Austrian man on horse is just charging across the pond as quick as he can with the flag of Austria and the Habsburg King's flag, and then all of a sudden a cannonball strikes the ground or the ice in front of him, and the horse falls into the water, and the flag sinks to the bottom of the lake, signifying the battle is lost. So, so here's what really Austrian. happened. No, so Napoleon, Wait, that didn't so happen? The, the, the Austrians and the Russians were routing back towards Austerlitz, and as they were routing, as most generals do in history, they continue to attack and assault with various methods, one of them being cannon artillery. Some of them were happening to take the lake route or the pond route, whatever it is. And some of the cannonballs just so happened to break the ice. And some soldiers and some horses fell into the water. But that wasn't like part of Napoleon's plan. And even to that point, when they were struggling for their lives, Frenchmen actually went over there and helped them out of the water and said, all right, we're, we're taking you as a prisoner of war. I think... Two or three people actually died in the water and 50 horses, and that was about it. So in in the movie, not only is it a part of Napoleon's plan, but the French soldiers advance to the shoreline of the lake and then halt their advance. And they don't pursue the Austrians over the lake ah. because they know that Napoleon knows that he's going to fire those cannons into the lake to destroy it. So, yeah, as I was watching that, I was just like, you've got to be kidding me. This is not the way it happened. Hey, but it's dramatic. It's so silly. And you know what? It makes for it a probably good looked movie. cool, though. Oh, it looked really cool. Yeah, that's all that matters. Sold uh, a ticket. I paid for it. So, Marat's dragoons, hussars, and guard cavalry charged repeatedly into the disorganized enemy columns. Allied casualties mounted as the French pressed the retreat, capturing over 15,000 prisoners. 
Only the coming darkness and staunch Russian rearguard actions prevented an even greater victory. By nightfall, having secured the field, Napoleon halted the exhausting pursuit. Yeah, so I, I, I do want to start with the first giving uh, right, Kutuzov his credit here. If Kutuzov had had his way, oh, yeah. they wouldn't have fought this battle here. They would have continued to move back up into Galicia and farther away from where they are. And so the, what that would have done is that would have shortened their trains back to Russia. It would have shortened their communication lines. It would have extended France. And then also, and this is pretty important here because at this point in time, Prussia is neutral here. They haven't taken any side. Um, and we're going to talk about how Prussia falls here after this. But if they had brought this battle up tor closer towards Galicia, um, that would have been right in Prussia's back door. Uh, and so that would have prompted Prussia to make a decision here. And with Austria and Russia already having superior numbers, it probably would have happened that they would have come, that the Prussians would have come down on the side of the Allies. So that was Kutuzov's plan. And honestly, that sounded like they had a better fighting chance than what they did here at Austerlitz. So I just want to give Kutuzov his credit because his czar wouldn't. Yeah. Yeah, Sar going to shut him out right. because that doesn't no. sound very sexy. Sounds rather Fabian. Yeah. The first thing I have is Napoleon's strategic bait and switch in seeing the Pratt's and Heights just demonstrates the power of deceptive maneuver to deceive an enemy and dictate terms of engagement. His gambit was risky, but ultimately brought the decisive terrain into French hands. He could have very well just held on to the Pratt's and Heights and used that to command the battlefield, um, but instead pulls off of it and presents himself an opportunity to defeat the Austrians and the Russians in a place of his choosing. And also, we have to understand that the battle took place on the 2nd of December, but it could have happened on the 7th of December in a different location entirely. And the campaign would have continued. I think that what happened, what occurred, is Napoleon saw an opportunity and he let them have the heights. If things would have gone differently, he would have packed up and moved somewhere else. If you were sitting there with 87,000 soldiers on a hill, you can't attack. And that's where Napoleon's going to make that decision. There was some political things happening, too, where Napoleon really wanted to get into a decisive engagement and end the conflict. He wanted to get out of it, uh, but he needed to have the a battle, a pitch battle happen. Even to the point where done, he cool. is faking hesitation on his front to his enemies, and he's trying to induce them to come into a battle. And so I think Napoleon wanted the battle to happen here in Austerlitz on this field. Of course he did, but... One of Napoleon's most impressive things is that prior to a campaign, he would roll out a map the size of an entire room's floor, and he would just spend a month compiling contingency plan after contingency plan as to if they do this, then I do this. If they do that, then I do this. And he had a, just an outstanding ability to basically pull out those contingency plans on the fly as he's maneuvering through his campaign. I guess, though... The one thing that he didn't come up with a contingency for is what happens if the Russians burn their own city of Moscow to the ground. I don't think he had that. Didn't one. have that. I'm just one for him. Bingo for him that he didn't. I'm have 1805. Bingo. Didn't have that contingency. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, but otherwise, he was spectacular. And so, I'm going to give Napoleon the credit where the credits due. I think that he's a smart enough guy that he would not have. He right. would not have charged across that open field at Gettysburg thinking that his soldiers were in, invincible and, right. and ruining his army at this place, like one other guy did 50 years later. I think I'm just going to bring up one more point. I have a couple other ones here, but I think a uh, more important one is just Napoleon's ability to improvise and commit his Imperial Guard and his other reserves at the right time and place. And this is probably just in general, like Sam, you'd mentioned, holding Marshal Sewell back until the exact right time to attack the Heights. Napoleon seems like he has a really great understanding of the timing and the pacing of a battle and knowing when to commit his forces at the most decisive point to give him right. the, the best advantage over his enemy. He's just able to plug gaps and make breakthroughs. Right. It just highlights his effective battle management. And he just has a great personal and you, big you difference have on the battlefield the script, So I'm, I'm just going to highlight it here because I think that this is a great sentence here. Disunity is death in warfare. So like when you're dealing with an opponent that has greater numbers than you, how do you deal with that? You disunify them. And you do that so that you can mass fire on, on a portion yes. and then level the playing field. Great point. But that's nothing new. That's nothing shocking. Napoleon I know, but it's did easy, this to, countless it's easy times. to forget that. It's he did it in Italy. When something is going wrong, trying to right that wrong, like the Allies, they were losing the Prasen Heights, 
and they just started to focus all of their efforts on reclaiming the Preston Heights. And it's like, that's not what we're here for, guys. That's so it's yeah. being able to hold that mentality. And it's just incredibly hard to get an army to do what, like your opposing mm-hmm. army, to mm-hmm. do what you want them to do. To to enforce your will so heavily on the enemy that they give up yes. the heights themselves to attack your weak flank to think that they're taking advantage of you. That is just an incredible piece of generalship that not really any other generals are able to do. Let's talk about what happens after the battle. So the first thing that happens, decisive French victory at Austerlitz, Napoleon compels Austria to negotiate terms. Initially, an armistice was signed on the 4th of December, requiring Austria to cede territory and pay reparations. Weeks later, the punitive Treaty of Pressburg formalized Austria's concessions on December 26, 1805. Specifically, Austria surrendered substantial territories to France and its allies, including vital provinces like Tyrol, Dalmatia, Istria, and portions of Venetia and Croatia. These lands provided strategic access to the Adriatic and Italy. Austria was also forced to pay 40 million francs in war indemnities to France, placing a heavy financial burden on the weakened power. Additionally, Austria had to demobilize much of its once vast military, limiting its army to just 150,000 men per the treaty. This prevented any challenge to French domination of the continent. And then in a massive political blow, Austria renounced its ancient claims to the Holy Roman Empire and accepted the empire's dissolution so also, after centuries what the, of Also, what happens in, a, in one swoop of the pen after this is not only is the Holy Roman Empire dissolved, but I believe Napoleon creates a federation of German states that excludes Prussia. Yes. And I that that's a pretty interesting point here because as you'll get into Prussia has another role to play here in the aftermath. As part of this, Francis II of Austria abdicated his title as the Holy Roman Emperor. He became simply Francis I of Austria, a mere fraction of his former stature. The harsh Treaty of Pressburg essentially made Austria a vast state under French control. Austria withdrew from the Third Coalition. The Holy Ro- been Roman Empire stood for what? 1300 so, years? How many? Was it? What, that, I don't know if it was 1300. Really or, I think it was in the thousands. It was a long time. That's a long time. And because of this battle, it dissolves. Brendan, we need to think that he becomes simply Francis the First of <laughs> He's Austria. He's still an emperor. And a mere fraction of his former statue. It's actually one half because he was Francis the <laughs> Second, and now he's Francis the First. Oh, well, there you go. <laughs> That's nice. one half. Russia was also dealt a crushing defeat at Austerlitz along with Austria. Tsar Alexander the First reluctantly withdrew his battered forces back east after the battle, realizing Russia needed time to recover and rebuild before thinking about challenging Napoleon again. The failed Austerlitz campaign demonstrated Russia was not yet strong enough to directly confront French military supremacy. Alexander bided his time, knowing Russia would need to grow stronger before making another move against Napoleon's empire. Russia's Russia's withdrawal marked the end of their participation in the Third Coalition. For now, Napoleon had prevailed in forcing Russia out of Central and Western Europe. But tensions continued simmering, awaiting a future confrontation between the Tsar and the French Emperor. That's the thing. So Tsar Alexander, even though he loses this battle... I've got some actual, like, mad respect for the guy because going on later in due time, obviously he's going to defeat the the French there in Russia later on in the winter. But, like, the guy was a young man in the mm-hmm. at this point in the war, at this point in, in life, and he's going to do some things that are not really popular but end up being the right choice, withdrawing into Russia, Napoleon in... Mm-hmm. And on top right. of that, there kind was kind of what Kutuzov wanted to do. But there's also a lot of political stuff that's happening at the same time. At one point, Napoleon sends out feelers to try and get a new wife and is talking with the Russians and the Austrians, and he gets completely played. But Napoleon, in his desire for an heir to continue on his throne and stuff, he's going to play right into the Russians and the the Austrians trap he's eventually going to marry so he's eventually going to marry someone from Austria and then he thinks that he's got this spectacular alliance with the Austrians because he's married to an Austrian turns out that he leaves himself uncovered and that's was when the Napoleon take being unfavorable to, to Josephine at the beginning of the end of Napoleon no just in in, in the movie like it seems I kind of saw it's outside of the bounds <laughs> The movie spends all too much too all way too much time talking about the relationship between Napoleon and Josephine. But what I would say is uh, Napoleon was absolutely infatuated with his wife Josephine, and I don't think that she oh. reciprocated. 
quite as much as he did. I think he, tragedy. he liked her a lot more than she liked He's him. just not that into you. And the movie actually does a pretty decent job of identifying that. You get this idea that Napoleon really loves her and he's crazy about her, but she's really not all that crazy about him. And a lot of the, the consensus historically is that is the case. So Prussia had remained neutral during the War of the Third Coalition, unwilling to join either side. But Napoleon's decisive victory at Auschwitz altered Prussia's calculations. In the aftermath of the battle, Prussia felt compelled to align itself with Napoleon's dominant French Empire. Prussia wanted to avoid potential invasion or coercion by France. By July 1806, Prussia formally became a French ally by signing the Treaty of Paris. Under the treaty terms, Prussia provided military access and support. So to if Kutuzov had gotten his way... Prussia, Prussia might have also, been an ally, but now, since they didn't do what Kutuzov wanted right. to do, Prussia was now right. an ally of the French. But, spoiler alert, that mm. alliance is not going to last very long. In this alliance, though, at the beginning, Prussia also gained control of the former Austrian territory of Hanover in exchange for the alliance. This was an added incentive to Prussia. While beneficial in the short term, the alignment with Napoleon would eventually draw an unwilling Prussia into future wars against Austria, Russia, and beyond. Prussia was forced to become a subordinate partner of France after judging Napoleon unstoppable. One thing the Prussians don't like is being subordinate. Napoleon's victory at Austerlitz marked the peak of the French Empire's power and influence. With the Third Coalition shattered, Napoleon stood unchallenged as a dominant force across Europe. France now held territory stretching from Spain to Central Europe after imposing harsh treaties on defeated nations. Napoleon had successfully redrawn the map to France's benefit following Austerlitz. Napoleon looked to further strengthen French control by installing his relatives as monarchs of allied states. He forged a system of satellites and allies loyal to France across the continent. However, beneath the, sur- however, the surface, resentment simmered as Napoleon tightened his grip. Occupied peoples waited for the chance to rise up against French domination. In Britain, Napoleon's growing dominance was viewed with increasing alarm over Auschwitz. The British alone remained unconquered. They braced for a possible French invasion of the islands. The British responded by supporting uprising, uprisings against France and forming new coalitions to finally defeat Napoleon. But for now, hey guys, his victory I know the first three coalitions didn't work, but maybe a fourth coalition will definitely work. <laughs> How about a fourth? The fourth is going <laughs> to not work out so well. But also, let's mark the peak of Napoleon's power in Europe. But brutal foundations and restless subjects foreshadowed cracks in his empire as challengers prepared to resist. The Battle of Austerlitz represents one of Napoleon's greatest triumphs and a monument to his operational mastery. By employing deception and psychology, Napoleon defeated a numerically superior Allied force. So here's one thing, though. We talk about how this was a masterpiece, how Napoleon, his genius, how he did such great things here. He lets him have the heights. But here's the deal. If Napoleon had lost, people would have a 180-degree change. They're going to say, he was stupid. He gave it away. I can't believe he would. Why would you ever leave the high ground? And so that's the thing. We can look at it based off of the result and say Napoleon's this genius mastermind because look what he did. But, I mean, he could have just as easily have lost. I still, though, I think in my next NBA session back here on staff, I'm going to suggest to my boss that we give up key terrain. Because Napoleon did. And I'll see if that gets me fired or not. Come. <laughs> Stay tuned. <laughs> all right. I just want to leave you all with a quote before we wrap up here. This is Napoleon, his proclamation to his troops after the battle. Soldiers, I am satisfied with you. In the <laughs> battle already- of Austria. Austin- <laughs> yeah. <laughs> satisfactory. I'm Good sorry, work. but if you're going to start your speech to me with your satisfied... Your performance my, is acceptable like, today. That's like a... That's not even above the... That's the middle of the road type of evaluation. Thanks. Soldiers, I am satisfied with you. In the Battle of Austerlitz, you have justified all that I expected from your intrepidity. You have decorated your eagles with immortal glory. An army of 100,000 men commanded by the emperors of Russia and Austria has been, in less than four hours, either cut in pieces or dispersed. Thus, in two months, the Third Coalition has been vanquished and dissolved. Peace cannot now be far distant. But I'll make... Only such a peace as gives us guarantee for our future and secures rewards to our allies. When everything necessary to secure the happiness and prosperity of our country is obtained, I will lead you back to France. My people will behold you again with joy. It will be enough for one of you to say, I was at the Battle of Austerlitz, for all of your fellow citizens to exclaim, there is a brave man. And that wraps up our discussion on Austerlitz. 
Sam, I think you're the one that's up next to decide on All the right. next series of Monday Morning General. All right. What so will I, the battle I, be? I still don't know how we're going to structure it or how we're going to talk about it, but we will have some discussions on the campaign of Stalingrad. More Russians. Uh, More Russians. Russians. Right. More. All right. Our second World War II series. Uh, go back to listen to the Battle of Midway to hear our first USA versus Japan. Sam, excited to jump into the Battle of Stalingrad with you on our next episode of Monday Morning General. Thank you so much for listening. Um, if you had a friend that went out and just saw Napoleon and might have been disappointed with the historical inaccuracies that were presented in that film, share this or episode with them. Maybe they're going to be so disappointed the with the historical the realities in which they didn't listen to the podcast and just took really stuff yeah. Yeah. Not a lot of romance in this story. But boys, I love you. This was a good episode. Thank you all for listening. MMG out.